We shall now turn to the book of Psalms and we shall read Psalm 93. Psalm 93. The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness Becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. And may God add his blessing to this reading of this part of his word. We come to Psalm 93, and as you will see, there is no author identified, nor are we told for whom this psalm has been composed or to whom it is actually directed. It is a psalm that in a sense stands on its own to be used at any occasion under any circumstances. But the focus is upon the Lord. And of course that should make it very appealing to the people of God. The more we know of God, the more confident we become in him. And though this is a short psalm, that's what the focus is upon. And it begins, like to other of the psalms, the Lord reigneth. You see the opening words, the Lord reigneth. Again, when you go over to 97, Psalm 97, it begins the same way, the Lord reigneth. And then again in Psalm 99, it opens the same way, the Lord reigneth. And these uh, psalms, uh, as you will see, all three have no author identified. But the focus is upon the fact that the Lord reigneth. That's the aspect of God that we find the psalmist concentrating upon. The Lord doesn't just exist. The Lord reigneth. We may learn much about the attributes of God, but this is about the action of God. He actually reigneth. It doesn't say that he did reign or he hopes to reign. He's actually consistently reigning. He reigns at this very moment. That's what the emphasis is upon. The Lord is reigning at this very moment. And therefore, the people of God are reminded that however chaotic this world might seem to be, to you and I, everything is under control. The Lord reigneth. He's keeping everything under control. He's directing everything. Nothing is as confused as men might imagine it to be. 
Now, you will see that here in this particular psalm, the Lord reigns, and it is focusing upon his majesty, his reign in majesty, in glory, with honor. The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. Now, the idea is, of course, that he's been uh, crowned and he is clothed with majesty when, for example, King Charles was crowned. He had on special robes, a special regalia for the season to indicate that he now had ascended the throne. He's now actually appointed to rule. And that's what we have here. The Lord is clothed with majesty. We are to see him reigning. We are to observe that he is justified in his reigning. The Lord is clothed with strength. His majesty is bound up with his strength. And his strength is bound up with his majesty, wherewith he hath girded himself. And it's as though uh, we are being told that the Lord reigns whether men wish it to be so or not. He hath clothed himself with strength. He hath girded himself with strength and with majesty. No one has girded him. No one has appointed him. No one has given him his place. He possesses it, as we read from verse 2. Thy throne is established of old. And what a peculiar way it seems to speak of that throne. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. Now, when we think, generally speaking, of something that's everlasting, we're looking forward. Something that is going to continue, it's going to last. It will ever last. But here we see something of the majesty of God in that the psalmist is saying, Thou art from, he's going back, he's not looking forward, he's looking back. And everlasting, the future, is exactly the same as the past as far as God's concerned. He's not bound uh, by uh, time at all. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, because he is, uh, his throne is established, then we read in verse 5, Thy testimonies are very sure. Thy throne is established of old. Thy testimonies are very sure. Uh, we read of the uh, decrees that were issued by the kings of Persia, uh, for example, in the days of Esther, in the days of uh, the Hebrew children in bondage, that when a decree was made by the king, it couldn't be changed. But that was unusual because very often kings were forced, even through war or uh, when they were uh, killed or, or, or taken from their throne, well, 
their, their testimonies or their decrees or their laws had to be abandoned or they had to be changed. But here this throne is such a throne that whatever God decrees, it is fixed. Whatever he sanctions, it remains. Whatever he orders, cannot be altered. This is the glorious king of which the psalmist is speaking. Now you will see that this is poetic language in the uh, psalm. It's usually the way with Hebrews were very poetic in the way they expressed themselves. And here we're told, verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods have lifted up their waves, and very often this is referring to the actions of men or the actions of society, the floods of men, the floods of opposition. You have in various parts of the word of God, when you go to the book of the Revelation, you have the beasts rising up out of the earth or out of the sea. They're rising up from among the people. And here we have the floods lifting up themselves, as it were. Uh, You have to understand that in the society and in the culture, of the psalmist, it was very different, and their thinking was very different to ours today. They weren't living in a society with all the modern technology, all the modern advancements. Their world was a much less sophisticated world. And for them, power in nature was the power of the wind, and the power of the seas, the power of the waves. That was what they considered to be an exhibition of power. And uh, when they're speaking here of the floods and the, uh, the crashing of the waves or the rivers, this is to them an, a, a, an exhibition of natural power. That's the idea here, the floods. They have lifted up themselves. They're making a great noise. They're exhibiting the power of nature. But, verse 4, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. The mightiest waves that can destroy ships, the mightiest waves that can, even to this day in which we live, we hear of tsunamis and floods and disasters, uh, the erosion of coastlines and the destruction of the mighty power of the sea and the ocean. Now this was power as far as the psalmist is concerned, but what he wants to draw attention to is this, the Lord is greater in power. The Lord reigneth even over the waves and over the powers of nature and over the powers of men. But since this psalm, no author is indicated and it stands alone, the Lord reigneth and his throne is established 
of old, thou art from everlasting. We have to understand that these psalms were chanted in the synagogue. They were chanted most certainly in the in the temple and so on, but in the synagogues as well. And there were particular psalms for particular Sabbaths and particular psalms for particular seasons. Now you imagine the Savior when he's in the synagogue, what would be going through his mind? How would he understand these psalms? And this psalm here that we're uh, considering together, what do we think would be going through his mind? How would he understand this psalm? Perhaps it is not identified by any as any author composing it, or is it directed to anyone or any particular group for any particular purpose? Because in reality, it is a psalm for Christ himself. We read that chapter in, in uh, the epistle to the Hebrews for a reason. And perhaps before we uh, go to it, uh, we uh, could read what's in Psalm 45 because Hebrews 1 actually quotes from this Psalm, Psalm 45. We're familiar with it. Verse 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Much the same statement as we have in Psalm 93. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Now when we go to Hebrews chapter 1, there is a direct quote from this Psalm 45. And we read what God says, to his son. Verse 8. God never says anything, we're told of this, to the angels. This is something that can only possibly be directed to the eternal son. Does not apply to anyone else at all. Verse 8. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, you must understand that when you hear people and they're opposed to singing from Psalms and the praise of God and they say you can't find Christ in the Psalms, you just wonder, well, how do they actually read them? Because the Psalms appear to be full of Christ. And it is from Hebrews we learn that Psalm 45 is actually referring to Christ. It is uh, in Hebrews 1, it makes it very, very clear that Psalm 45 is referring to the Savior. And likewise, Psalm 93. The Lord reigneth, verse 2, thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. And that is how we view the eternal Son of God. He's from everlasting. He's the eternal Son of the Father and God the eternal Son. 
And so you can understand that this psalm refers to him. The Lord reigneth. Now we might tend to think, well, that must refer to his exaltation. The Lord reigneth because he died. He rose again. He was exalted. He sits at the Father's right hand. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. But going back to Hebrews 1 again, God didn't just direct words to his son. He also directed words very clearly to the angels. He could not refer to them as his son or his sons, but he does counsel them. When we read in uh, the first chapter of Hebrews what God said to the angels, he makes them his angels' spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, and that's in contrast to what he said, verse 6, Again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, we have a tendency, perhaps, to think, well, that must refer to the unfallen angels, those angels who have kept their first estate. They're not guilty of rebellion. They're not re uh, guilty of disobedience uh, to God. Every angel, whether kept and preserved in a state of holiness or whether they're fallen, they are all under an obligation to worship the eternal Son. And when we see here in Psalm 93, the throne is mentioned, the reign is mentioned, the Lord reigneth. When he came into this world, the Father told the angels, he may be in a human form, he may have taken to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, but your worship doesn't change. Your attitude doesn't alter. He is still God, a very God, and he's still ruling and reigning even when he's in a state of uh, sinless humanity. And we see this, the power of the Redeemer, even when he is here in a state of humiliation. Sometimes we have a tendency to think in his state of humiliation, he had less power than when he uh, was previously in the bosom of the Father or when he ascended. All power was given to him undoubtedly when he was exalted to the Father's right hand. But the angels were told to worship him because he's still God. And he was told when he came into the world by the Father, thy throne is secure. Even now in his humanity, he's still the king. And when Pilate asks him about his kingship, he tells him that he came into the world. 
uh, for the very purpose of testifying to the truth. And that was the truth, in particular in the Old Testament. So, when we see the Savior during his earthly ministry, what do we see? We learn from his actions, from his teaching, from his preaching. He's still the reigning Lord. He may be in a state of humility, but he's not forced into that. He willingly humbles himself. He remains God of very God. Not one iota of his deity has been altered by the fact that he comes in human form into this world. He is every bit as much God as ever he was from all eternity. His throne is as secure as it was from eternity past. But because he is God and because he reigns, he humbles himself. No one humbles him. He humbles himself and he becomes of no reputation. And he does that because of who he is and because of the purpose of his ruling and reigning. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. He comes to defeat Satan and the powers of darkness. He comes to conquer. He doesn't come to submit. He comes to conquer. And we see the power that he has where uh, you imagine the disciples, they went to the synagogue, they would chant the Psalms or hear them chanted, and they would observe the Savior, they would observe his works, what he did, what he said, and they must have thought at times when they were listening to these Psalms, it can only refer to our Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The floods have lifted up, uh, the, uh, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods have lifted up their waves. Don't you think that when the disciples were in that boat out in the Sea of Galilee and a mighty storm arises, and they're thinking we're going to sink. The Savior is asleep. They go and waken him. And they say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? And he rebuked them for their lack of faith. But then when he calmed the storms, what were they thinking? They were wondering, well, who is he? We thought... He was Jesus of Nazareth. He had to convince them, teach them of who he was. If we go, for example, to Matthew's record of the incident, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23, he was entered into a ship and his disciples followed him. They followed him into the ship. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Now, the disciples were used with storms and wind, but this is a great tempest. This is a real severe storm, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now, normally this would not happen. 
because skilled fishermen wouldn't go out into such a storm. They were capable of reading the clouds and the wind, and they knew when danger was around, and they wouldn't venture out. But he was entered into the ship, and the disciples went with him. And it was as though he was deliberately taking them into a storm, and a great storm. And this is what we're told. The disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. Now that was their thinking. They really did believe. We're going to perish. We perish. We know it. We've been out in the sea before. We've been in storms and gales before. But this is something we have, we can't control. We're really in desperation. We perish. He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful? Now, they were as human as you and I are. And can you just picture the scene, the disciples looking at one another. The ship is full of water. Waves have gone right over it. And the Lord says to them, Why are you fearful? Now you just imagine what would go through their minds. What planet does Jesus live on? Where did he come from? Does he not know we're perishing? Can he not see the wind and hear it? Can he not see the condition of the ship? Imagine saying to us, why are you fearful? We're fearful because we're in a storm. We're fearful because we're going to perish. That's why we're fearful. Why would he ask such a ridiculous question? Now you see, in these communications between the Savior and his disciples... And it's not that he's on land and they're in the storm. He's right beside them. He's in the same ship. He's in the same storm. And yet, how differently he views the same scene they're looking at. How differently he feels to what they feel. And that is a lesson that sometimes we have to learn and we might be tempted to think Well, does the Savior actually see what's going on? Does he actually know where we are? He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now can you imagine? They maybe go to synagogue. On Sabbath. And Psalm 93 is read out. You can imagine then what's gone through their minds. Ah, this is the Lord that reigns. This is no ordinary man. This is more than Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one whose throne is established forever. And you can see other occasions when Jesus demonstrates his mighty power, he reigns over the elements. 
And you know, we listen to the radio every day. What do we hear? Floods, fires, devastation, men fighting against the elements, and they can't control them. You read of fires out of control, floods out of control, (coughs) destroying properties and whatever else. How many their minds ever go near the word of God, the winds and the sea obey him. They obey him. I can only come to one conclusion. Since they obey him, he sends them in judgment. Now I know we'd be mocked, we'd be mocked out of court if you stated such a thing to the parliamentarians or the people of Australia. But that is the fact. The winds and the sea obey him. They don't obey anyone else. They obey him. And because he's rejected and because he's despised and because his gospel is rejected, he can show his displeasure and he controls the very elements to send judgment and destruction, powerful destruction that men can't cope with. Then you remember Peter, when they were out in the Sea of Galilee and in the storm Jesus came walking in the water and they were frightened at the first because they didn't recognize the Savior. They thought he was a ghost or a spirit. But he said, it is I. And then Peter said, well, Lord, if it is truly you, let me come to you in the water. Jesus told him to come. And he began to walk, but then he saw the the winds, uh, or the waves, rather. And he began to be afraid. And as soon as he began to be afraid, he began to sink. And he had to cry out, Lord, save me. And he was saved immediately. But one of the things that we read in the Psalms is what sometimes is the real experience of the people of God in Psalm 42. And sometimes when they're in this situation, they they think all is lost. Psalm 42, and the psalmist is panting after God, longing for God, longing for God's deliverance. And he's cast down, he's dispirited. And he asks the question to his own soul, verse 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And sometimes it is true that in certain conditions, Sometimes the Lord's people don't even know why they're cast down. They really don't know, and they think, well, I shouldn't be cast down, but I am cast down. What's wrong with me? But then 
verse 6 of this psalm, the psalmist continues, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Miser. And then this is what he's saying. He's cast down, he's troubled, he's anxious, he's burdened, he's concerned. And he says, verse 7, Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. What's he really saying? I'm not just cast down, I'm drowning. All thy waves and thy billows, they've gone right over me. They've swamped me. I'm beneath the waves. And he says, here all thy waves, not just any waves, all thy waves, the waves that we were reading about in Psalm 93, the floods have lifted up their uh, voice, the floods lift up their waves, they make a mighty noise and so on. And the psalmist says, because they've lifted up their waves, they're mighty, they're powerful, I'm sinking beneath them. They are mightier than me. They are overcoming me. I'm totally overwhelmed by them. But, this is what he says in verse 8 of Psalm 42. Yet, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, And in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. Like Jonah, you remember Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. He said he cried out of hell. But the Lord heard him. And here's the psalmist saying, Well, all thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. He recognizes these waves are not accidental. What did the disciples say? The wind and the sea, or the wind and the waves, obey him. And he can send such waves into the experience of his own dear children, that they can be completely overwhelmed by them, and can think, I'm going to perish under them. But... This is what the psalmist recognizes. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness. The wind and the waves, the wind and the sea, they obey him. And the psalmist is recognizing that God sometimes sends adversity. He sends difficulties. He sends problems. He sends circumstances that are overwhelming. And we wonder, well, where is the love of God? Where is the mercy of God? Where is the grace of God? But you see, this is the one who reigns. And because he reigns, he knows what's best for his own people in his own kingdom. 
It's a, one of the things I used to marvel at when I was younger. I used to do quite a bit of shore fishing sometimes. And of course, in the part of the world that I come from, fishing bait is very different to bait here, and fishing's a bit different to the kind of fish and so on. But when you went out to look for bait in order to start fishing, well, there were different kinds of baits that you knew fish will take to. There is a little creature, and it's called a limpet. And it's a little cone-shaped shell, fish. And the little creature lives in below that shell. And it's not very big. It's just uh, maybe an inch and a half wide if it's fully grown. It's just a little tiny creature. And yet no power of the ocean can move it off the rock. It has a suction mechanism in its body. And it will suck onto the rock and it will hold. And no matter what gales will wreck everything, it will be there when when the storm is over. It hasn't moved one iota. And very, the only way that a fisherman can get that little creature off that rock, he takes a hammer with him and he must give it one knock. It has to be one, it has to be so sudden that the, the little creature hasn't been expecting it and he's knocked off. But very often when he's knocked off, you will see a round ring actually in the rock. It has clung so fast and so long that it has actually worn a ring where it has been right deep into the rock. And that's how the children of God are. There is like that little limpet. The more the waves come with all their force, the more it clings to the rock the more it holds on. And that's, you see, what the psalmist is saying. All thy waves and thy billows have gone over me, but still I survive. Still the Lord preserves me. And sometimes that's what adversity sent for, to make us cling all the more to the Savior. And maybe that's why he sends the waves, to make us hold on faster, to make us hold on stronger, to make us cling to himself more than ever before. And Jesus, (coughs) when he was in this world, he demonstrated he was still ruling, he was still reigning. He had power not over the elements and over circumstances, Uh, The things that frightened the disciples didn't even move the Savior. Didn't trouble him. But then also what a power he had when he came to feed the thousands. What a power he could reign with miraculous power. You have the incident recorded in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds Thousands of people. And how did he do it? 
Jesus tested his disciples. Uh, He knew himself what he would do. In John chapter 6, Jesus saw a great company. And he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him. God does say things to us at times to prove us, to test us, test what we're thinking, to test our faith, to test our understanding of who he is, for he himself knew what he would do. And yet, we're not told at this point, though he knew what he would do, he's going to feed these thousands of people. One of his disciples after Philip answered 200 penny worth of bread, is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Even if we just give them very, very little, it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of bread just to give them a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. And then he said, What are they among so many? What could anyone do with that? Jesus said, Make the men sit down. And then he took the five barley loaves, which was the cheapest kind of bread that was the bread of the poor, This was a a, a lad from a poor family, obviously. And Jesus took it. And when he got it in his hands, when he took it out of his hands, out of the little boy's hands, and when what the little fellow had, when it was in the Savior's hands, it made all the difference in the world. It wasn't much. It was actually despised. Uh, What do we find the disciples saying? What are they among so many? What on earth could anyone do with this? And very often you see, we think, well, you ask Andrew, what could you do with that? I could hardly feed myself, he'd be thinking. This is just a child's lunch. This is just from the child's menu. It's not even an adult's meal. But you see what happens when it's removed out of the little fellow's hand and it's put into the hand of the Savior. And what a difference it makes when things are taken out of our hands with which we can do so little And we know perfectly well we don't have the power. We might be able to do something very little with these resources. But that little, when it's taken out of our hands and when it's put into his hands, what a difference it makes. And so often we're slow at learning that. Oh, I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to do what I can do. But if we would hand it over to the Savior and take it out of our own hands and give it over to him and say, well, here it is. 
what a difference it would make, what a power he possessed. And that power still belongs to him. The Lord reigneth. And of course, he reigned over the powers of darkness. He cast out devils. He controlled the very, the very uh, unclean spirits. Uh, the Savior was not lacking in power or authority, even in his humiliation. And this is one of his psalms. And when we read this psalm, we should see him. And our minds should be drawn to his ministry in this world and drawn to what he is capable of doing. The Lord reigneth. Do we really believe that? Do we complain as though he doesn't reign? Or do we understand, no matter what I think, like the disciples, I, I think I'm going to perish. And Jesus says, well, where's your faith? Why are you afraid? And you'd be thinking to yourself, well, it's very, very obvious why I'm afraid. But Jesus is asking this question because it's a question of what trust they have in himself. Does he reign or does he not? The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. That is a psalm that focuses not only upon God as the Father, but upon Christ himself, who is the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word.